Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you all for worship this morning. Uh, uh, if you are new or visiting, uh, glad to have you with us, especially would love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here. Like Andy was saying, uh, come to a small group. That's the best way to start getting plugged in, getting to know people, building relationships. And I guess his is the best. The rest of us are doing our best, apparently. So uh, you are welcome at all of them, and uh, we'd love to have you there. So uh, we we're on the front end of a series uh, this morning as we begin a new, a new year that's all uh, talking all about identity. Every one of us wrestles with the questions about identity and purpose at some point in our lives or not. So often those are recurring questions, the questions of who, who, I, who am I really and what defines me? What's my purpose? What are the, what's the thing that, I've, that I'm here that I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Where do I look for sense of value and significance and worth? And we saw last week how the Bible's answers to those questions really stand in stark contrast to what our world and our culture has to say about the answers to those those questions. We live in a world that says that the way to find out the real you, the way to, be, to become who you really are is to look deep inside your own heart and to discover your innermost desires and then to express whatever you find there uh, without, without inhibition, whatever you find in there. But we saw last week as we looked at Colossians chapter 3 that what happens is really when we look deep in our hearts, what we find is not something that should be put on parade, but instead are often desires that we need to put to death. The Bible shows us we saw that the depths of our hearts are really steeped in sin, and what we need most is not expression, but is instead redemption. Instead, we saw how the Bible tells us the way that we discover our real selves, the, the true you, who you really are, isn't by looking inward, but instead, we saw in Colossians, it's by looking upward. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Verse 3, for you died and your life, your identity, he's saying the, the real you, the true you, he says it's hidden with Christ in God. And so the reality we talked about last week is that instead of defining our own identity and purpose, the invitation for us is that we might look to Jesus and allow him to be the one who tells us who we are and who we receive our identity from. And it's, we look to him and we look to see him who is he both perfectly shows us who we were made to be, but it's also through his death and resurrection that we're actually offered redemption and renewal so that we can actually become the people that he makes us to be. And so C.S. Lewis, I quoted him last week, he put it this way in his uh, book, Mere Christianity. He says, the only, uh, only Jesus Christ can help us to discover and become who we are meant to be. And the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. That's at the heart of what I want to do throughout our series, is to remind you not about who you say you are is what defines you, but about who God says you are and how that defines you. And really what I want to show you over our series is how that's really actually good news that gives life and joy in the midst of the world that we live in. And so as we continue our series this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you how on the most foundational level, the most like the basement level, foundational level, 
the God-given identity and purpose that we see Jesus both demonstrating for us, but also redeeming us unto, is that we would be God's image-bearing representatives, that we would be God's image-bearing representatives. It's a reality that fundamentally both informs and transforms the way that we look at who we are and why we're here and what it means to really become our true selves And so to show you that, what I want to do is we're going to actually go back to the very beginning where everything all began back in Genesis chapter 1, and I can't wait to show you that. So we got a lot to cover this morning, so let's pray and we'll dive in together to God's Word. God, thanks for our time together in your Word this morning. Thank you that you would gather us together so we might uh, hear it and study it. And God, we just uh, come to you this morning needing you to be guiding and shaping our time together. And God, what your Word has to say about our identity and our purpose and who we really are, God, it stands in such stark contrast to the world around us. And so we need you by your spirit to cause the truth of your word to actually to receive it as truth and to receive it as good news. And so God, I pray that for our good and for your glory that you would accomplish that in us this morning and that you would use your word and our time together to bring about those realities and that you'd be empowering us to be a people that lives in the identity you give us instead of trying to create one for ourselves. So we need you for all that God thinks that you love to meet us in our need for you. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Just a couple of verses at the end of chapter 1, but there is a lot there. And so uh, we're just going to dig through that together a little bit. Begins in verse 26 this way. This is kind of the end of day 6 of creation. It says it this way. And God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may have so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground and so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them and god blessed them and he said to them be fruitful increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky over every living creature that moves on the ground zoom ahead to verse 31 god looking back over all creation he sums it up this way it says god saw all that he had made and it was very good Now, the reality is that uh, Genesis is, in a lot of ways, an origin story. And origins matter to all of us, right? Because in large part, where you come from, it helps to inform and to shape uh, who you are, right? That's why when you meet somebody, you always ask them, hey, where are you from, right? Because when you you know where someone's from, it helps you to understand a little bit more about who they are, right? That's why when you you find out, oh, you're from Minnesota, right? Oh, that's why you are depressed when you're watching any sports other than women's basketball. I understand that. Now, right? It's just how it is, right? Or you, uh, you, maybe you find out I'm from Tennessee and you're like, oh, that explains why there's sweet tea at like every meal the Peppins have in the summer, right? Like it explains a lot about your background and it helps you understand where you're going, right? Because if you know where you're from, it helps to explain where you're going and it helps to explain life in the middle, right? And the good news is that God and his word, they, he meets us in the midst of our search for our purpose and our origins and our identity. And in fact, the book of Genesis opens by answering those very questions. But what I want to show you in our passage this morning is not just that Genesis tells us where we come from. More importantly, Genesis shows us who we come from. 
And that reality really changes everything. You see, a lot of people think that Genesis is all about the how of creation. But I think the reality as you study the, the passages, what you see is that the emphasis throughout Genesis 1 and 2 is much more on the who of creation and the why of creation than it is on the how. And see, and what you see throughout the Bible is that the point of creation, the, the reason for it all is that it might reveal something about the creator that it might reveal something about the one who made it and its beauty and its intricacy and its vastness and its wonder, the creation of what it does is it reveals something to us about the one who made it. Psalms 19, chapter one, echoes Genesis one and two when it tells us that the heavens, they declare the glory of God, that the skies, they proclaim the work of his hands. And, and what we see happening in our passage this morning at the end of Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, is that, is that in a very distinct and unique way, humanity reveals something about the creator God that no other part of creation does. And, and the passage goes out of its way to make sure to highlight how important that is, how much of a big deal that reality really is. Three times in two verses, in all different slightly different ways, the passage repeats that humanity, that mankind is made in the image of God. And when something gets repeated in Hebrew literature like that, one thing, it's like the, it's like one of those stop signs that has like the flashing LEDs around it. It's like, do not miss the stop sign. This is super important, right? If you miss this, there will be problems. And from the very beginning, what God's word is telling us is that there is something really, really important about the reality that God's made humanity in his image. And so the question that you need to ask then is, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that humanity is made in the image of God? And why is that apparently so important? Well, uh, the, the fancy theological word for the idea that we're talking about this morning, the image of God, is called the imago Dei. And I like to throw those Latin words in for you uh, so you feel like you're getting your money's worth every once in a while, right? Um, but uh, the reality is, is that theologians have written a whole ton of pages on that idea. And what I want to do this morning, I think, is just kind of boil it down, because I think there's really two key things that we see in our passage that shows us about what that really means, what, what it really means that humanity is made in God's image. And the, the first and the foremost is that, is that the image of God is something that all humans possess, it's, in, it's inherent to who we all are. Verse 26 that says that God made mankind, that God made humanity in his image and likeness. And so the image of God is something that is inherent to every person, everywhere, all times, all places, all people. It's regard, true regardless of gender and race or ethnicity or culture or wealth or strength or ability or disability. It's true of everyone, everywhere, always. Now, to be clear, what we possess is not the physical likeness of God, because the Bible is clear that God is spirit, but rather what humanity possesses, as one commentator puts it, he says, is it's a physical manifestation of the very essence of God. What that means is that unlike any other part of creation, is that humanity has the capacity to both know God and to reflect his nature and character. Unlike any other part of creation, Humanity has the unique ability to both know God and to reflect and to, uh, and to imitate his character, his nature, his rep and, and as his representatives. John Calvin, he put it this way. He said, we are like mirrors that reflect something of God back into the world. 
And that leads us to the second thing that I think the passage highlights for us about what it means to, be, to bear the image of God and why that's so important. Verse 26 and 28, we see that our identity as image bearers is actually directly tied to our activity as image bearers, right? A lot of times we live in a world that says that your doing is the thing that leads to your identity. But rather what God's word says is that your identity is the thing that leads to your doing, that who you are is the thing that produces what you do. And so What we see happening is that verse 26, God says that God makes humanity in his image so that we can rule over creation. Verse 28, God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. And we do not have time to go in to do the deep dive on all the nuances of exactly what's going on there. But to sum it up, what I want to show you this morning in that section is that that it's our activity and it's our actions that are directly tied with what it looks like for us to be God's image-bearing representatives, right? In other words, God's, the image of God isn't only something we inherently possess, it's also something we embody in what we do and in how we live. One commentator, I think, just sums it up this way. He talks, he says, while a baby may be affirmed to be in the image of its father, few can recognize that image. But based on the inherent image and the relationship with the father, the image grows more recognizable as the child matures. And that doesn't essentially take place in physical ways, but rather in the way the child mirrors the attitudes, expressions, and character traits of his or her father. Jen Wilkin uh, just so helpfully echoes that. She says, she talks about when highlights how being God's image bearers is ultimately about reflecting uh, and who, showing who God is is ultimately about reflecting Jesus. It's about seeing in him. And so as we live for God and as we worship him with lives that reflect his nature and character back into the world, what we're doing is we're, we're imaging him. We are reflecting him. My, my daughter, Emma, is wildly creative. You give get that girl like 15 minutes and a glue stick, right? And you will have like some wondrous work of art explode out of our basement, right? And I love encouraging her creativity, I love to encourage her creativity because what she is doing in her creativity is reflecting the creative maker who made her. And so as we enjoy the sunsets together, as we enjoy all of God's vast, beautiful creation together, as we most recently, as we marvel at the magnitude of the stars in the universe together, what we're doing is remembering that the creative maker, God, whose identity we receive, and who we reflect back into the world with our own creativity. There's all kinds of ways, but that's one of the ways I show her that. You see, and so in these two ways, in our inherent possession of the image of God and in our ongoing embodiment of the image of God, humanity reflects the image of the creator in a way that no other part of creation does. And that reality has such deep and far-reaching implications for our lives. You see, first, it simply is that, that being made in the image of God, it informs and transforms our identity and our value and our worth. You see, all people have infinite dignity and value and worth because we all bear God's image. And so the reality is that some of you are here this morning and you need me to remind you about that. You need me to remind you that you are valuable and worthwhile and your worth is immeasurable not because of something you bring to the table, not because of your accomplishments, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of whose image you bear. What that means practically for us 
is that our identity, it comes from the fact that we have been made by God. And that is so liberating because what it means is that you don't have to go out and manufacture your own identity. That's exhausting to do. We don't have to go prove ourselves to earn a sense of dignity and value and worth. You have it immeasurably, inherently. You automatically have it because of the virtue of being God's image-bearing representative. And so whether you are healthy or sick or, or rich or poor or black or white or born or unborn or young or old or single or married or brilliant or simple, wherever you are at, you bear the image of the creator, God. That's the, uh, the foundational, basement level, root level identity that we have. And that truth has such power to transform our hearts. Maybe you are here this morning and you've been told that you are worthless or you've been treated as though you are or you just feel that way about yourself. And I just need to remind you this morning that is a lie from the pit of hell. You see, you bear the image of the great king and creator of the universe. There is no higher, no more wondrous, no more valuable dignity and worth you can have. You bear his image. And your identity is found not in what others say about you, hear this, or what you say about yourself. Your identity is rooted in what he says about you. At the end of verse 31, God looks at his creation and he says it's very good. You see, being made in the image of God, it transforms our identity and our value and our worth in ways that nothing else can. It is an identity that we get to receive rather than one we, get, we try to earn or merit through our actions. And that brings us to the second thing that we see is that being made in the image of God, it informs and transforms our purpose as well. Not just our identity, but our very purpose. I talked earlier about how it's our identity that leads to our doing, not the other way around. And so our world promotes a story of expressive individualism where self-expression is the highest virtue. But it's a story that when we follow it, all it does is it leaves us just kind of endlessly running on the hamster wheel of self actualization because you may, you are free to define yourself but then you have to become however you whatever you define yourself to be and it's exhausting but instead what we see in scripture is that we were made for something much greater than just ourselves the one author writes that he says god holds out a better promise in his word we find that god's god made us in his image so we are therefore made by him and for him. By definition, being an image bearer of God means that this life and this world is not ultimately about you. And that's actually really freeing because none of us can bear the weight of a world and a life that's, that hinges on us. You see, our identity as image bearers tells us that our purpose isn't about us, but it's actually instead, it's really about God. 
And it's found in living for God and reflecting his glory and his goodness to the world. One pastor writes it this way. He says, we are God's image bearers. And so we are to think thoughts that reflect the glory of God and to feel feelings that reflect the glory of God and to speak words that reflect the glory of God and to do deeds that reflect the glory of God. And we're to treat our body as stewards in such a way that we reflect the glory of God. And the beauty of that calling is that that's actually the way to joy and life. Because the reality is, is that when you are living in the identity and purpose that God gives you, you are in the sweet spot. I imagine if some of you have found a job that you love and you enjoy going to work all the time. And that is great for what it is, but that job will end and it will change. But imagine finding your identity and purpose and living in the sweet spot in every part of life. There is such life and joy there. And what I'm not saying is that it's wrong to find some sense of meaning and purpose in the areas of life that God's called us into, whether that's our work or our career or in our family, our relationships, whatever it might be. But when you look to those things to find your ultimate source of identity, to give you your sense of purpose, what happens is you set yourself up for fleeting moments of happiness and endlessly repeating disaster. You see, because the reality is is that all of those things, they can be taken away in an instant. All of those things on some level as well are outside of your control. People can die, jobs can be lost, relationships can be broken, our service and our work for others can be rejected and unvalued. What happens when you lose those things, the thing you found your meaning and your purpose and your identity in, You have to start the long, arduous journey of trying to figure it all out from scratch again, or you just give up. You see, but the good news of the Bible is that your meaning and your purpose are not found in something that can be taken away from you. They're inherently found in something that is unchanging, that you are an image bearer of the unchanging God, and that can't be taken away by anyone or anything. And that is really good news that actually gives our lives every part of our lives, even the mundane parts, even the parts that are painful. It gives every part of our lives an incredible sense of meaning and purpose and value. You see, maybe you are a mom and you chose to stay at home with your kids for a season, but you are just really wishing you could get back into the corporate world again because you just feel so unproductive. And the good news is that your meaning and your purpose is not wrapped up in where you work or in what you accomplish, but rather in who you work for. And if your work is ultimately unto the Lord, whose image you bear, then there is incredibly life-giving meaning and purpose in changing diapers and reminding your kid for the 13th trillionth time to just say, please. There's life there in the midst of it. Maybe you are in a job and you are just not really excited about it. And it's really hard to find a sense of a purpose there. It's hard, to, it's hard to find reasons to be engaged and to work hard in the environment that you're in. But when your purpose isn't just to work for a boss who you might enjoy or not, or a company you might enjoy or not, but instead when your purpose is to reflect the creator, God, whose image you bear, and to show the world and to reflect him into it in the way that you work, then you can find meaning and purpose in a way that can really sustain in the midst of things like that. Or maybe you are sick 
or you know someone who is and their sickness has left them in pain or in dependence on others and instead of being able to help and offer service to others, they're in need of help themselves. They need to receive from others and, and the question is, have they lost their meaning or purpose if they can no longer give but must only receive? Well, if their identity is wrapped up in being an image bearer of God, then no. Because even in the midst of sickness, you get to point to the one who has made them and the one who will renew your bodies with the unfailing one in the end. You see, the reality is that the identity God gives us as his image-bearing people gives us a security and a confidence and hope you can't get anywhere else. Because it's not based on you. It's one you get to receive it's so altogether different than the identity and purpose the world offers us. But the doctrine of the, the imago Dei, the image of God, it doesn't just change our identity and purpose. It informs and transforms the way that we live those things out in relationship to the creator and with the rest of creation. It really changes all our lives, not just our perspective. You see, because being made in the image of God means that we're distinct from both the creator and the rest of creation. Genesis teaches us that, we're, that we are made by God, we're made between God and the animals. We are lower than God, but higher than the rest of creation and the animals. And so it's important that we know our place because the reality is that humanity, we err so often in, in two big ways when we think about ourselves. We either think too highly of ourselves, that we can rule the world, that we are smart, intelligent problem solvers, that we can save ourselves with our brilliant and wise and talented solutions, that we're really just little gods. Or we think like Sigmund Freud taught that we're just nothing but animals, slaves to our basic natures and desires. You see, but the truth we see in Genesis is that we're not animals and neither are we gods. We are people made in the image of God, called to reflect his nature and character to the world. And the reality is that when you relate to God rightly as his beloved and and commissioned image-bearing representative. What happens is that actually transforms the way that you actually relate to the rest of creation. First and foremost, that changes the way that you relate to people. Remember, it's not just you who bears the image of God, it's all people. Matt Chandler so insightfully points out, he says, you'd be hard-pressed to find an area of injustice or oppression that does not have at its root a failure to understand and apply the image of God. The oppression of women and the hindrance of the flourishing of women is an, is an image of God issue because there is no greater sex or more important one or more useful one. Verse 27 that God says that God made men and women both equally in his image. And racism is an image of God issue because all of man Mankind is made in the image of God, and so everyone has equal value and dignity and worth. There is no one culture or skin color or whatever it might be that holds some level of superiority. Furthermore, issues like pornography and sex trafficking, those are ultimately image of God issues because at the heart of those things is we look at people as objects to be consumed rather than those who bear the image of the great creator king. You see, how we view and treat people says something very significant about how we value God, whose image they bear. And when being made in the image of God informs and transforms how we relate to one another, it is such life-giving good news to our world. 
because it leads to a culture of, being, of, of people who are characterized by showing grace and respect even to those who radically disagree with them and even those who have wronged them. It leads us to valuing others not for what they can offer us or the benefits we receive through relationship with them, but instead by valuing people because of the reality of whose image they bear. It looks like us showing dignity and respect to those who act undignified, not because they have earned it, but because neither have we. And yet God still freely gives it to us. You see, being made in the image of God, it changes us. It not only gives us an identity and purpose that is so radically secure, but it transforms our relationships with people. And it frees us, instead of needing to receive and use others for our own good, it frees us to lay down our own lives and our own priorities for the glory of God and the good of others. But even more so, our image of God, it being made in the image of God, it transforms not just our relationship with other image bearers, but with the rest of creation itself. Verse 27 through 28 says how God, that God, as God's image bearers, we're called to rule over creation as his representatives. And what that means is that we don't worship nature, but we don't abuse it either, right? Because neither of those things accurately reflect the God who created it, right? One commentator writes, he says, rule implies lordship, but not exploitation. While legitimizing human use of the world's resources, God gives no license for our abuse of his creation. See, what happens is when we see ourselves and our identity fundamentally as God's image-bearing representatives, what will happen is we'll start to see ourselves as stewards of his world. And so we treat it with, with care and respect. We enjoy the world God has made, and we don't worship it, and we don't abuse it either. You see, are you beginning to see how foundational how basement level, how all-encompassing the idea that we're made in the image of God is. How it transforms us from the very bottom up. The image of God transforms our identity and our purpose and our relationship. It changes everything about us. But the tragic reality is that you and I not only fail to live in the identity that God gives us as his image-bearing people, we actually reject that identity from the beginning. And instead of receiving the identity God gives us, each and every one of us has rejected God's calling and purpose and identity in our lives and instead chosen to manufacture for ourselves our own identities. Like our first father, Adam, we reject the one God gives us and we fail to reflect and mirror him and and honor it in the lives of others. And so we are sinners by nature and by choice. And what happens is that sin, it cracks, it shatters our proverbial image reflecting, image bearing mirrors. What we see is that the good news of the gospel is that there was one who came who bore God's image perfectly in our place. Colossians chapter 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1.3 echoes that by saying that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You see, the message of the gospel is that where you and I failed to bear God's image rightly and to honor it in others, Jesus did not. 
And he lives the life of perfect image-bearing representative that you and I were called to live but did not. And when we confess our sin and our failure to live out our identity and purpose and our rejection of it in the first place, and we put our faith in Jesus to be the one who can forgive and redeem and renew us, what happens is that he, by the power of his spirit, begins to put our mirrors back together so that increasingly more and more over time, we are able to accurately, rightly reflect God's image in our actions and attitudes and the way that relate to him and to the world. And that doesn't happen all at once. It's this ongoing process by which God is remaking us into the people that he has called us and made us to be in the first place. But what's so important that you see this morning, what you cannot miss is that, is that you cannot live out the identity and calling God has given you as his image-bearing representative without Jesus. You cannot do it without him. Your mirror is shattered beyond repairability without him. Without his redeeming, restoring work in us, our mirror is cracked and broken, and we will never be able to embody the God whose image we bear. And so the invitation is that we might acknowledge our sin, our rebellion and rejection of God and the identity he gives us, that we might surrender to him and to his power so that we might receive the transforming, renewing grace that we really need from him. The reality is, is that that is so hard for us to do. It is so hard for us to do. Even if we know we need it, it's so hard because the reality is, is that we are so reluctant to give up our self-made identities. We look at the one God gives us, we might see it as good news, but it requires that we let go of who we say we are and who we've made ourselves to be so that we might receive from him the good identity he gives us, and that is hard. You see, defining ourselves, we live in a culture that heralds the definition of yourself as the highest good as the way to real freedom, as the only way to find the real you. But the truth is that that is endlessly exhausting. It doesn't ever give you the thing that you are looking for. Instead, as Tim Keller puts it, until you realize that the significance that you really need is to be seen as significant in God's eyes and that the approval you are really longing for is God's approval of you and that the security that you really need is to be found secure in his arms. Until you see that in Jesus, you have all of that, you will never be able to rest. And you will always endlessly be seeking to manufacture an identity for yourself. And so I want to call you the church this morning. I want to invite you to choose to rest in the identity God offers you freely. There's this old hymn by guy named James Proctor, the last verse goes this way. It's always stuck so deeply with me. He says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. You see, the real you, who you were always made to be, 
it's only found in him, in his work on your behalf, not in your accomplishments and what you can achieve, but in what he has achieved for you and in who he says you are. And every week when we take communion, what we're doing is remembering and celebrating that reality. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus bore God's image perfectly. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the perfect image-bearing life that you and I were called to but did not. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he paid the price for all the ways that we have marred the image of God in ourselves and in, in the lives of others. And what we're doing is we're proclaiming the gospel to ourselves and to one another. We're reminding ourselves about who God is and all that he has done and who we now are because of him. We're reminding ourselves about the one way you get to rest. When you rest in his work on your behalf. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember the identity he offers you through the death of his own son. And so if you are here today, and you've put your hope in Jesus, if he is the one who defines you, then I want to encourage you, go back during our time of worship and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration of the identity he so freely secures and offers you by his blood. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And, and if that's something you are even, that you even want to do, you're still living for the identity that you have made for yourself rather than receiving one from him, I, want to, I just want you to know how welcome you are here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals. He is not after going through the motions. He is after a heart that gladly receives and walks in the value and worth and identity he gives. That's what he longs for. And so if by faith this morning you choose to receive the identity God gives you, and to ask him to be the one who renews your broken mirror so that you might live out the very purpose for which you have been made, then go back during our time of communion. Take it as a celebration, remembering all that he's done for you, celebrating that. But wherever you are this morning, I would encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to show you how understanding the reality that you have been made in his image needs to transform your own identity and purpose and worth. Ask him about how he is calling that to change those things in you. Ask him where you need to repent of rejecting the identity that he gives you and instead trying to manufacture one on your own. And ask him as well to empower you by his spirit to live out the identity he gives you. Ask him to empower you to do that for your good, but more than anything, so that he, the great king and the creator of all, might be worshipped and glorified for who he really is. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful to get to gather together this morning and to remember the identity you offer us. God, we swim in a world and a culture that says we define ourselves 
God, but there's no life there. God, the identity you offer us, God, is so, it is such good news. There is a life and a purpose in every part of our existence because of you and the identity you give us. And we ask you, God, that you might help us to lay down our manufactured identities so that we might receive by grace the one you give us. Call us to be your people and empower us to live as your people reflecting your nature and character to the world. God, might that produce in us the life and joy we so desperately long for and might ultimately it reveal you as the great glorious king and creator of everything. We pray, amen.